The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. So regular listeners to When the Facts Change will probably know that I grew up on a dairy farm in a really remote area in the Bay of Plenty. It was often dry, it was often hot, the land was not that fertile, and I grew up on this land, as my father did and my grandfather, trying to get as much as possible out of that dirt. And my father taught me, and I was supposed to be a dairy farmer on that land, taught me to do things hard, to be intensive about everything, to pack on as many cows as we could, to grow as much grass as we could, to really work that land hard. Because all you've got is the kilograms of milk solids or the kilograms of meat coming off that land to put away as money in the bank. Because Somewhere down the track, there's going to be a bad drought or a storm or something. And so I learned that's how you did things. And I went to Massey University to study agricultural economics, and I got taught the same sort of ethos, which is take as much as you can, put as much resource as you can into the land, and take as much output as you possibly can. Work out what is the most financially ruthless large thing you can possibly do. And I went through this process beginning to wonder, well, what's the point? Because as I discovered, my father worked himself to death, as did many of our neighbours. They worked brutally hard and they worked the land hard as well. So it meant often when there was a flood, I'd go down the back of the farm and there'd be another chunk of the farm that had washed away There'd be some slips um, where the grass was gone. The pine trees that we'd planted had fallen over. It always felt like we were on the edge of it. And this was a piece of land that at that point wasn't irrigated. Now, we left that land before the irrigation technology came along and it was irrigated to within an inch of its life. That land is now polluted and the rivers and the lakes downstream from it in Galatea are polluted. But the value of the land has risen very sharply because of the number of kilograms of milk solids that land produces. It's made me think a lot about what farming is supposed to be and how our existing systems of land ownership and measurement of output and costs are totally inadequate for working out the long-term and the broader benefits and costs of land use. Now, we got a really horrible example of when it can be done wrong on 
the east coast of the North Island and Northland in the last few weeks when we suddenly realised that a decision to change the land use on quite remote, steep, high country land to turn it from pure pasture into pine forests actually backfired in a huge way. The slash, which again is one of those, as economists we'd call it, externalities. It's something that you cut down, you dump, and then it's not your responsibility any, anymore because it washes off your land onto somebody else's land or somebody else's catchment. And the soil that is dislodged in the next flood goes somewhere else because it's off your title. It's got nothing to do with you. And the benefits of whatever it is you've produced from the land or how you've changed the land use stay with you. The costs go somewhere else. And the longer-term disaster on that is, of course, what's happened in South Canterbury and in other parts of New Zealand where land use has changed from, let's say, less intensive sheep and beef to dairy where an awful lot of nitrates are pumped through the topsoil into the water tables and have ended up polluting entire water bodies, not to mention produce enormous amounts of climate emissions, which also aren't measured. This week on When the Facts Change, I wanted to talk to some people who are doing it a bit differently in farming, who are thinking more broadly about the costs and the benefits and about how you change land use and avoid some of the unintended consequences, like we have at the moment, where we have an incentive to plant pine forests on land to do a lot more of what we saw in the wake of cyclone Bola back in the late 1980s. And we risk creating the same problems all over again. Huge monoculture plantation forests that end up polluting the environment, unloading mountains of slash downstream and destroying even more productive land in horticultural basins below. This week on When the Facts Change, I talked to Alison Dews, who is a farming consultant and advocate working with farmers doing things differently, like John Burke, for example, who has a long-time family farm, which over many decades he's turned with his family into a, a more of a complex farm with native forests, plantation forests, more wetlands, which it turns out actually was more profitable. We'll find out how some farmers are doing it differently, not using the usual financial incentives, but with the help of some subsidies and some investment from others, are actually improving the long-term prospects for that land, not just in terms of their own profitability or product, but the long-term costs and benefits in a wider sense for the community, for catchments, and for the environment overall. We have a fundamental problem with farming. It is all about the tragedy of the commons. And this week on When the Facts Change, we address how you can change land use and avoid the tragedy of the commons. Well, kia ora korua to John Burke and to Alison Dews, who are dialing in from the Mount Monganui to talk about land use, climate change, farming, forestry, all of that stuff. Great to have you on When the Facts Change. Kia ora. Tēnā koe, Bernard. 
Alison, um, you've been a close observer of uh, how our agricultural sector is is changing, some of the regulatory demands and some of the issues that have cropped up, particularly around climate change, water use. Could you give us a sense of how much change there is going on in land use and in particular the pressure that's going on the sheep and beef sector from pine forestry? Yeah, well, it's it's catchment by catchment almost is what is happening with change. So different catchments across New Zealand are moving at different speeds. And in a way, we almost say thanks, dare I say it, to COVID because we had the Jobs for Nature funding, which injected quite a bit of funding out to the regions, not only to produce jobs, but to also um, fuel the growth of catchment groups. So I would have to say since about 2020, we've started seeing some quite rapid change as a result of small regional, hydrologically similar areas and catchments um, and, and groups of farmers getting together and starting to understand their geology better, understand the drivers better and make quite rapid change where there is leadership. But if we move back out again to the whole New Zealand view. Obviously, we've had a lot of central government policy come out as well, which has been a little bit confusing at times. And so as an average across New Zealand, we probably haven't seen broad scale change. What we are seeing is lighthouse change in catchments where they have been funded, where they've been given farm systems support and also funding to you know, co-fund retirement of steep slopes or critical source areas or areas on their farms that are vulnerable. Could you tell us what sort of things you're talking about there with lighthouse projects and uh, what you're actually doing with the land? Um, perhaps, John, you could tell us what's what's going on with your, with your land. Uh, well, I'm a farmer with my brother, um, Pukakauri Farm, and our journey started over 20 years ago. So we're fortunate, um, you know, that the challenges that farmers are being faced with now, um, we were addressing and had to address uh, back in uh, sort of the late 90s. And, uh, you know, having gone through that journey, I I would say from the outset, it's not as hard as what it seems. It's highly rewarding. And what, one of the things we did at that stage, we created a vision for what we wanted our farm to be. And we did a broad scale landscape plan of our farm. We got a good understanding of the environmental issues. And then we developed a plan, okay? But our plan, what we did was when we did that, we forgot about the money. We said, forget about the money. Let's look at what's right for our whenua, right? And uh, so I said, Alison and I have been just been talking about you know, making decisions not with your puku, but with your nako, right? With your heart. And that's what we've got to do for New Zealand. Forget about the money, do what's right for the whenua. And that's what we did on our farm. But strangely enough, the outcome has been, it's been good for our puku. <laughs> Could you give us a sense of, you know, how, um, you know, how when you initially thought about the problem, the obvious financial thing to do was something different and what you ended up doing? Yeah, well, I think if you take the money out of the out of the equation to start off with, you get a nice, clean, objective 
well thought out plan. And then what you've got to do is work through how I'm going to pay for this. So it's about uh, planning and picking it off. We've had 20 years on the journey and most farmers facing what they have for their own farm properties will have that as well. Um, and so um, it's, it's looking at it and, and, and working out how you finance it from there. But it becomes almost self-supporting once you get it right. You need good support from your bank and the banks aren't quite there yet. I'm from an agribusiness background. And I think the banks have sat there, they've um, funded a whole lot of intensive agriculture. And I'm saying to them, well, you guys, you're pretty smart, eh? You know, like me, I'm just a dumb farmer. Five years ago, I could see what was coming. So you would have been ahead of the game. So all this farming that you've lent to in terms of intensification, you will have a, contingent, a contingency, I'll repeat that, a contingency plan for helping those farmers going forward. You're not going to bail out of them. You're quasi-equity holders in all this whenua across New Zealand, and you've got to need to come to the party with what farmers are chase, um, facing in terms of land use change. So could you tell us um, how your farm has changed? Just just paint a picture for us if we haven't seen it before. You know, what will we have seen 20 or 30 years when we were driving past the farm or um, flying over it, and, and what do we see now? Bernard, you would have seen a lot of grass. <laughs> I, I've got a BXI degree and I was brought up under the EGA mentality, effective grass area. I worked for the Rural Bank and we funded the Land Development Encouragement Loan. We were knocking down bush, manuka, so I paid my penance, right? So what we found was, uh, so we had a lot of grass, right? But our farm was at the top of the catchment and we're contributing all the sediment E. coli into our into our estuary, the Tauranga Moana. In fact, um, our little uh, bottom of our catchment, the Tamania catchment, was the worst in the Tauranga Moana. So uh, the regional council actually came to us and said, you guys, you, you just bought this farm. It's one of the most degraded in the Western Bay of Plenty. We want to help you um, change things. So what we've done is progressively, we identified our landscapes and what we had to do. And um, those were like your steep, um, erodible landscapes, your riparian areas. And um, also our critical source areas, a lot of them former repo wetlands. And we've progressively gone through and uh, retired those. We're still on the journey. We're still doing stuff. So what now, you look at our farm and about a third of it has been retired. But we had independent analysis on our profitability back you know, 20 odd years ago, uh, we had a fellow, Phil Juneau, um, examine our profitability and brought it through and inflation adjusted our numbers. We are making more total profit from our pastoral farming enterprise than we were back then. And so I'm agribusiness, right? And I'd crunch the numbers. And I said, we're on our certain land management units, we're making a loss. And that's, that's um, obviously reflected in the numbers where our total profit's gone up um, with a lower effective grassed area. On top of that, we've now got um, carbon income through uh, the land that we've retired. We've got a bit of plantation forestry and we've got nahedi as well, uh, blended in and um, into our landscape. And so that's on top of that total profit from our pastoral enterprise. Alison, um, you advise a lot of uh, farmers and groups and companies on 
not just the profitability, but the regulatory aspects and the environmental aspects of changing land use. Could you talk about how um, what appears to be the most obviously profitable thing to do to, you know, blanket the land and grass and put as many cows or sheep or deer on it as you possibly can, how you can actually improve the profitability, as has happened with John, um, even though, you know, you might have a lot less grass and you might not have grass on some areas at, at all. How is that possible? Because when I studied agricultural economics, I had the same, same thing at Mass University. All my lecturers were saying, lots of grass, lots of cows, whack them on. Sure. Yeah, we've been indoctrinated to think that more is better, that linear thinking is the answer. When in fact, when you look at the lighthouse farmers, people with John's story, um, we know that there's a sweet spot and that's at the intersection of people, animals, the environment and probably current policy landscapes and social licence. So that sweet spot in a way has to be demonstrated by example. So farmers are led by farmers and the story is constantly changing, as is the climate. And um, so, so what I tend to do is work, I tend to be lucky to work with leading farmers like John and plenty of others and dive deep into those businesses, understand what, what's happening in terms of um, uh, profitability, return on capital, but also now increasingly we have to understand our ecological footprint. So we're looking at the emissions, we're looking at the risk to the receiving environment. So in a way we come up with a bit of a dashboard of health, um, business health, you know, eight or nine KPIs for the business health, but also um, KPIs with the health of what that farm is doing to the receiving environment. And that gives you quite a concise way to tell that story based on really well-validated numbers. And then, you know, my background's a veterinarian, so I tend to look at the demographic profile of farmers. And as I said, I'm lucky to work with the leaders. I tend to want to work with the leaders because they're the innovators and the experimenters. And they're the ones that also will look at their peers and look at what's happening and how they've done things. Because we all make mistakes when we're right out in front, you know, when they're out in front. Um, and that's that's a good place to be. But that's also a reason why we can't have broad brush policy to get change. Because in that demographic profile of farmers, like I say, you've got the top 10%, which are the innovators and the leaders. They like to be incentivised. They like to take risks in a way and also try things, but learn from mistakes. Whereas probably the bottom 50%, well, I shouldn't say bottom, but those that sit at the other end of the curve, they'll need to be regulated to make change. So as an advisor or someone that works alongside farmers, it's about getting that story into a concise way from what the leaders are doing, like what John and Rick have been doing on their farm, telling that story and helping others understand and get the confidence to move there. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% 
last year. Now central banks have reacted, they've tightened monetary policy, they've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. So um, you talked about the blunt approach, um, broad brush approach, uh, and there's been lots of debate in politics about emissions trading schemes and um, people turning large swathes of uh, sheep and beef farms into pine forests because that's where you get the big lump of um, carbon uh, credits from when you do it. But could you give us a sense of where maybe we're getting some perverse outcomes from policies that are designed to be good for, for example, climate emissions and carbon sequestration, but may end up in the wider sense of not being good? And we obviously think now about what happened uh, in the last 30 or 40 years uh, in Northland and in Te Tairawhiti where so much land was planted in pine forests and and now we have this slash issue. Uh, so could you talk about the you know the unintended consequences and how policy could maybe stop some of them? Sure. Um, unintended consequences, whether we're talking about pines and ETS and things like that on the East Coast, we could also talk about Canterbury, where we had permissive lending regimes and permissive resource allocation regimes, if we take the spotlight off the East Coast and Gabriel for a minute. We knew full well well what was going to happen there within 25 years, you know, it had been documented by the DSIR. But we carried on because we're ossified into this more is better mentality. And, you know, uh, dare I say, you know, the, the resource allocators continued to give out water. Um, farmers were led by industry leaders, which were saying, who were saying more is better. And we ended up, we've ended up with some very perverse outcomes there, which is going to mean that we're going to need land use change. 
more recently, obviously, we've had the cyclone. And we do get these cyclones, you know, probably at 50-year events. Um, talking to an ecologist yesterday, looking at this, the sediment in Lake Tutera, over the last 6,000 years, they analysed it and said that about one, one time every 50 years, we will get these sort of events. Ironically, my father was alive in the 1938 flood. He was 18. And he's left us a story with photos of him trying to walk from Tutera to through the Esk Valley, wading through mud up to his chest. And again, there was logging in those and it was clear, clear filling the forest then for sheep farming at the time. But similar sort of events happened. But we are going to see these more frequently. So getting back to your point of we design broad brush policies that are put in place probably to work in terms of getting an average behaviour response. But if I go back to what I said before, that not all farmers will behave in the same way, not all land stewards will behave in the same way. So I think we need a mix of policies, and some of them might be, you know, incentivising that top 25% with something like a brokering system, whereby we are seeing ecological credits or something along those lines, um, for doing the things that John might have been doing, like planting a third of his farm into native and wetlands, etc. So it's not just broad brush policy that's going to make the change. And we don't want to make, we don't want to let go of this crisis. It's an opportunity to make some seismic change for New Zealand. We need a vision for Aotearoa though, don't we, John? You hit on it, Alison. Um, I think before we even look at any policies, we've got to do, and I'm, I might be being simplistic here, but I I believe in the KISS principle. Uh, I believe in the common sense, the CS principle, and I believe in the GSD principle, which is get shit done, right? Um, and we're not doing any of that. And so the first thing, and I sort of look at what we did with our farm and say, why don't we do that for Aotearoa, the big farm, okay? So before we develop any policies, we need to do a landscape plan for Aotearoa. And what would that what would that look like? Do you think? Because when I drive around the Motu, I sometimes fly over. I see an awful lot of green, sometimes brown, scarred landscapes. What would you do with all of that hill country, which currently you know produces a lot of lamb and and beef? Yeah, but it, looking at our example, a lot of that's um, not profitable. I mean, you look at the beef and lamb numbers around uh, the EFS or um, economic farm surplus, and uh, that's well under $100 a hectare. Like it's around 50 or 70. Now, that includes the whole farm. So you take out the management units that are highly erodible land, and that's probably run, running at zero or negative. And this, it's not just our farm, there's a whole lot of farms in New Zealand who have done what we've done and had the same results. So you need to uh, um, repurpose that land. And, and if you had a sword scientist, and I know that some of them have been on the radio, that, that highly erodible land should not be in pines, right? It's got to go back into Nahedi, right? But when we do that, we have to do it in a way that, that Nahedi is able to flourish so if you talk, uh, look at what's happened in Hawke's Bay, Gisborne, there has been loss of um, some Nahedi as well, and, and I know they're doing the forensic examination of the logs that are down at the bottom of the Awa, 
um, and it's a bit of a mixed result, so we'll know probably about that in time. But there's uh, Nahiri that's given away as well, and, and what they're saying, the reason for that, it's forest that's uh, been is, is under threat. It's degenerating forest, and that's because you've got no understory. So you've got browsers in there like goats, deer, that are um, they're wrecking the forest. So the forest is in a healthy state. So part and parcel of this is dealing with our animal pests alongside whatever we do and also our weed pests. So how do you look at this? If you, if you are having to look at it in a purely financial economic sense and maybe you've got a banker looking over your shoulder and uh, you have to think about it, how would you make planting in native um, attractive from, from a purely, you know, what I'd call a ruthlessly financial, through a ruthlessly financial banking lens? Well, for me, Bernard, it's, it's forgetting about the, the dollars first, doing the plan with your narco, right? Get Do what's right for the land, and then you develop your financial plan from there. And then we can start to understand how we incentivize putting trees in the right place. I'm talking the Aotearoa farm. And I mean, the three of us, if we owned Aotearoa, and I was sitting on your our board with us two, would, that's what I'd want to do, right? And there's, there's the mapping, the tools, the knowledge to do all of that, okay? Forget about the numbers. And then we start developing our policies. So if we start talking about policies now without doing the plan, we're going to get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And we've done that. You know, we've got first outcomes with the ETS, as we know, in terms of pine. And so we can talk about how we fix that now. No, I say step back. Let's establish the vision for where we want to go. And it could be for our rural sector, but it could be for our whole country, right? Uh, get our get our rangatahi to write it for us. They're going to inherit the mess, and we can't argue with those young kids. And then we get on the journey to see how we're going to fix it and implement it from there. Alison, um, I often notice when I speak to young farmers, uh, perhaps in a different way to um, when I was going to say very old farmers, <laughs> like <laughs> the <me>. average, <laughs> average age of, the, of a farmer these days is well into their 50s and 60s. But there is a difference in approach between the youngest farmers and the oldest landowners. And the, I've noticed the youngest ones seem to be more um, attuned interested in the environmental aspects, but also in, frankly, not working themselves to death. <laughs> it's one of the, re- one of the reasons um, I'm not a farmer is I watched my dad work like a dog being an intensive um, farmer. Uh, Alison, could you talk about how, you know, that conversation's happening in the, in the rural communities um, around what young people are saying, what older landowners are saying, many of whom will be wondering why their kids don't seem to want to t- take over the farm. Yeah, sure. And it, it's t- there's definitely different optics coming from the younger generation. They, they're not ossified in their thinking because they haven't been indoctrinated in a way from the old industrial approach of maximum grass area or whatever. They'll come in with a different approach, which is around aesthetics, potentially subdivision opportunities, potentially tourism opportunities, and probably are a little bit more curious and exploratory 
in nature. So they will be more open to trying different things. And if we just go back to what you um, mentioned before, how would this farm plan look, if you like, from a farm or to the whole of Aotearoa. We do have amazing modelling tools. We've got amazing technology now to be able to look at that whole landscape and do a land and environment plan for the country, but with a lot more options than what we had available to us maybe 30 years ago or 60 years ago. So it's, you know, we could be saying, you know, in in certain catchments, anything above 15 degrees, if it's highly erodible, should be going into trees. Some of it will have to be permanent. Some of it might be a permanent nursery crop, whether it's natives or whether it's exotics is the permanent nursery crop to get that fine, or I suppose that sweet spot of both economics and ecological outcomes. But I can't give you a broad brush answer for the whole of New Zealand simply because the geology is different in every catchment, the hydrological flows are different in every catchment, and the current land use is different in every catchment. It's going to have, it's going to almost have to be New Zealand first. What's our high level vision, and then catchment by catchment. So, like I said, one good thing that came out of COVID was the Jobs for Nature and funding of catchment groups. It's a different model from the old regional council, the regional to farmer local plan change approach um, this allows change from the ground up at, at, in a different way than we've done before I mean if we get this right um, it could make a huge difference so I look, you look at Hawke's Bay and you look at that highly valuable horticultural land down on the alluvial floodplains. I mean if, if we get it right we're going to have an exposure period but if we get reclothe our hinterland in the right nahiri, right? And and then we um, you, you'll see that the hydrological flows, and, and we should, should be able to model it, will decrease the peak hydrological flows. And, and so we've got this problem. We've got all the slash in the rivers, but we've also got a hell of a lot of sediment, and we've got peak water flows. So if you get it right, you will remove the flat slash, and then that, there's an interim problem here we've got to deal with, right? And I think I believe we can deal with that. We've got an exposure period, but once you've got um, healthy Nahedi, the the hydrological flows will will decrease the peak, and we're seeing that on our farm. Our neighbour down the road says the river never gets as high as it used to, because we've created, we've clothed our steep land. We've got good strong soil now, full of fungals. The water holding capacity of the soil is really good. And then we've created all these little sponges, the micro wetlands, the repo. And so um, and so you do that on a hinterland broad scale, quite conceivably, sure we'll get flooding, but not to the nearly extent, you know, in about, it'll take about 30 years probably, maybe longer. And so those floodplains can become productive again. Alison, just, just finally, um, one of the sort of, elephants in the room in this discussion is is how we have tied all sorts of rights to land ownership, which often mean that things we do on the land affect others, not only others outside the boundaries of the title that we have, but also outside the time frame. So the best example, of course, is very intensive dairy farming. You have... Um, nitrates going through the water table over decades and then shifting out through the 
the water catchments and poisoning uh, uh, areas downstream. And then, of course, you, you have the whole uh, uh, climate emissions issue around farming where the nitrous oxide and methane emissions are not uh, measured or priced and, of course, go into the atmosphere that aren't actually connected to the land title, which means that you have these you know, so-called externalities where you get the benefits of land ownership and farming the land, but the costs of it are spread to someone outside that land title and maybe outside the time frame in which you're, which you're doing it. Can you talk about how we can, you know, somehow connect up the um, the activities of farming with all of the costs and maybe all of the benefits as well? Because one of the one of the things we've got here is that if you do change land use, and as John was saying, you you know uh, uh, bring back the wetlands, you bring back the native forests, and that improves the um, the lives and reduces the risks downstream away from the land title. How do you make sure that those costs and those benefits actually get wrapped into the decisions that are being made, you know, for the for the long run that affect more than just, you know, one farmer's land title? It's effectively the tragedy of the commons, isn't it, that we're talking about. So those externalities in a way, they um, they've got to be penalized. But and so maybe that is a polluter pays. I don't like using the word polluter, but it's the externality maker pays, and then that money is funneled back into incentivising the low risk activities on inside the farm gate. So incentivising the wetland, incentivising the sponges in the landscape, incentivising the flanking of the steep slopes, and. That, that should be able to happen naturally. I don't know, you know, off the top of my head, maybe there's got to be, for example, a tax on, say, synthetic nitrogen fertiliser, which is easy to capture and simple to do. But it will send a message that we've got to be using less, we've got to be looking to more principles that look after the organic matter of the soil and enhancing the microbiome of the soil, I'm not going to throw words in here like regenerative, et cetera, because there's a whole lot of other things associated with that. But um, we've got to be penalising those externalities, um, maybe capturing a tax or a, a, that penalty uh, income from it and giving it back and incentivising the leaders to make change because those ecological benefits, they protect the communities from harm downstream, which is unfortunately what we have seen just recently. So if you were to do some sort of, let's say it was a polluter pays tax on, on nitrates um, or on nitrogen fertiliser, and then that money was reinvested back into, for example, uh, credits for uh, native planting or allowing wetlands to recover, um, that's that's actually quite uh, similar to the... Um, clean car rebate scheme that we have at the moment where people pay more for a very uh, polluty car and then that money is reshuffled back to those people who spend a bit more on a, a low emissions vehicle. Are there moves afoot to to do this business of, you know, um, using those sorts of tools to price the costs and then use the revenues to reward the benefits? Well, these things have been discussed before, but unfortunately, big business doesn't like some of these things, especially when it comes to taxing nitrogen fertiliser or examples like that. 
Um, but in a way, yeah, they might be blunt instruments, but they've also got to be readily procurable and readily managed. So there's a balance there, isn't there, for how this has to be done or, or we'll send the right messages. Uh, polluters have to pay and we have to manage it through. There needs to be transition, but honestly... If you talk about the ETS, you know, we've got this pooled system, haven't, you? haven't we, where ideally the carbon tax or cost of carbon should probably need to be up to about $140, $150 a tonne, but that drives perverse behaviour because in all of New Zealand will be in blooming pine trees unless we just re- regulate it out. So we need to have a circuit breaker in there. So really, polluter pays as a separate monetised uh, system that goes into a, into a separate pool, which then can be used to uh, assist farmers to um, repurpose their land. And I mean, farming, farmers haven't got the money, right? They haven't got the ready cash. And even with, um, you know, carbon prices, just funding that is a major problem. So we've got to work out how we're going to get farmers to be, be able to make those changes at scale and fast. So that's what we've got to do. Thank you very much to um, Alison Dews and to John Burke for joining us here on When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.